Welcome to The Generalist, a podcast of Canadian Occupational Therapy Perspectives. I'm your host, Jen Talbot-Bay. Season 1 explores the highs, lows, and lessons of the first years of practice. Today I'm chatting with Justin Turner, who graduated from UBC in 2017. He's worked in various practice settings in Prince George, British Columbia, including acute surgical, inpatient rehab, and community mental health. Topics in today's show include use of self and stories, embracing uncertainty, and OT being more than doing. So we're going to jump right in. Uncertainty. I know that's what I felt when on day one of my first real life big girl job. Um, You? Uncertain? Sure. Were you confident? Did you know what you were going (laughs) to do? How was your kind of first experiences with uncertainty in our profession? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's an honor. <laughs> so happy to have you. Um, yeah, so I am about a year and a half out of school now. I've been practicing uh, first in acute care and then inpatient rehab uh, and now in community mental health. And there's been a lot of uncertainty <laughs> um, all along the way, for sure. Um, I think the the biggest thing at this point in your career is you're, you're going from six years of school, you know, where you're getting constant feedback, you're, you're writing papers and it's good, it's bad. And people are telling you exactly what you did wrong, what you did right. Um, what to consider next time. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. How to improve. And then in occupational therapy school too, um, like your, your preceptors are giving you quite a bit of feedback. Uh, and then you jump into being an actual OT, and it goes away entirely. <laughs> There's no one standing behind the glass telling you how you should have done your interview differently? <laughs> I mean, maybe there's some practice <laughs> settings where that would be the case, but yeah, definitely not. Um, wasn't for me either. Yeah. yeah. You, you might, if you're really lucky, you'll have a, a good mentorship kind of program built into your first job, which I did have, I think, like... I met with my supervisor once a week, but even that, it doesn't dispel, um, you know, the uncertainties and the anxieties that I had about about my own practice. Right. So I think that's a huge point going from getting constant feedback in one form or another, having things to work on, having like even rubrics for every project you do. You know, you don't go into a visit with a client and have a rubric. Oh, did I do this? Did I do that? all those sorts of things. So that whammy. Plus, now you're the expert. You're not wearing your student name tag anymore. I think there's a little bit of pressure when it falls on you. Like, you're providing care for that person. Yeah, so much yeah. pressure. <laughs> so <laughs> and, much pressure. And you, you sort of don't know what you're doing a lot of the time, to be honest. Um, and you, you just have to be really reflective because, like, the – the person that you're helping, like they, they see you as the expert. They see you as coming in and, you know, with a specific set of skills. Um, and yeah, you, you just, you don't always know what, what to do in every situation. Yeah. And I think reflection is the only way to progress. And going back into that clinical reasoning, you need to take that time and build it in, whether it's in your day or after work to really reflect on what you're doing. Um, 
I know I've tried reflection in a bunch of ways, whether it's just, you know, making voice recordings on my phone and listening through my questions a couple days later, or um, I tried journaling, couldn't get into it, (laughs) those sorts of things. Have you found anything that works, that helps you reflect on your practice? I definitely find, for me anyway, journaling is is really important. Um, I used every day when I was first starting out. Right. Um, and that, that might not work for everybody. but <laughs> And then the other thing was I started uh, around the same time as a couple other new graduates. Okay. So, yeah, we would talk to each other and, and kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Right. So you had kind of a built-in support network there of, I didn't know what I was doing today and someone else didn't. So it kind of mm-hmm. felt a little bit better. And like you, you might not have that depending on where you start yeah. out. So, but but you can create it. You've just graduated with... 50 to 100 other other people who are in the same boat as you. So, yeah, I think drawing upon your support network of other people who are who are in the same boat of you as you is important. Yeah, and I found really reflecting with OTs in different roles was also mm-hmm. helpful because I kind of get stuck. I started out in mental health as well and just thinking mental health wise, but then really talking to OTs in acute care or OTs in long-term care facilities or whatever else really helped me get that holistic view again and not get narrowed into one silo where, you know, you use action over inertia and you use this program where you can only think in these kind of three ways. It helped remind me that you're still looking at the whole person you're still doing all these things and you can still think through the process in mental health, but, you know, thinking about their home environment, thinking about all these other things that might not first come to mind when you're just trying to figure out what CBT actually means. <laughs> um, so that's what I found helpful. Yeah. You also told me a little earlier that you had a great tip about how to know if what you're doing actually helped. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? <laughs> sure. So like I said, I started off in acute care where the goal was really like to get someone out of the hospital, to get them home and, and, to be safe and hopefully thrive. Um, I like that. More than just be, be safe at home, but get them thriving. Yeah, yeah, ideally. <laughs> um, but, you know, we I, I would be sending people home and, and hoping for the best, but really just not knowing what's going to happen. And I, I might not ever see um, the person that I worked with again. So what I took upon myself to do was to read the charting um, and and in Prince George there's like an online charting system for community so I was able to do this um, so I would look up a, a patient that I worked with read the online charting to see if like the plans that I'd set up the the things that I'd put in place if they were actually successful um, and and sometimes it wasn't so that was helpful to to read the reasons why you know the plan that we put in place didn't work yeah, and I don't know if everyone would have the luxury of being able to like check up on that, but if you know that the care you're providing is going to be followed up by somebody else checking in with them and saying, what are some of the commonly missed things that would have been nice to have before you came in? Or, you know, did I set them up with too many things? And then it was just about, you know, prioritizing or exactly getting a little bit of feedback from the next team coming in. I thought that was brilliant. I never I never did that. <laughs> now I will. I'm going to start. Yeah. And it, sure. it doesn't even have to be like an occupational therapist. Like you can follow up with if the nurse or the social worker in the community is the first one to 
see them, you yeah. know, checking in with them to see if, if things went well or not. Right. And just, yeah, because some, like, it's hard to do an actual follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily in everyone's role or within their practice scope. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool that you're able to connect with the bigger team and yeah. really find out what what went well, what didn't, and how you can support um, people better in the future. So that's really cool. One other thing about reflection was trying to do a little bit, like whether it's once a week, like setting a date to reflect um, and just sitting down and doing it. So whether I wanted to or not, felt like it, or it was like, I don't even know what I'm doing, but just writing a couple points down, whether it was like practice-wide or a specific challenging situation um, or something that went easily, um, I found that was also helpful. Was when I did have a good day or a really good moment, making note of what made that possible too. So if I'm having a rough time, like getting started with reflection, maybe just writing down some of those like celebrations and those like, Hey, that felt right. What did I do there? And kind of break it down that way. And that helped me just get inspired about reflection again. Cause sometimes it gets, it gets draining when you're just like finished your 40 hour work week and you're like, I should reflect right now. Cause I had a busy week, but don't necessarily have the energy. That's kind of what would work for me. Hmm. Um, yeah. Like deliberately setting aside the time. Yeah. Tuesday yeah. at 3 till 3.30 or whatever time it was. Mm-hmm. Um, or twice a week. And whenever I felt like I needed that. So mm-hmm. in earlier on in a new role, more reflection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then as you get more comfortable, um, I think you can go a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe a little bit less often. I, I think, though, like, no matter how much reflection you do, and, and reflection is important, for sure. Like, you're going to have that uncertainty. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, probably forever. <laughs> probably the more reflection you do, there might be more uncertainty. But at least yeah. then you uh, are sure. naming the beast rather than just running away from it. <laughs> mm-hmm. For me, anyway. But, but good point, yeah. I yeah. don't know if it's going to make you feel confident in week three. But um, part of the process, I think, that we signed up for being... Um, lifelong learners in a profession that is always changing. Yeah. Hey generalists, if you're like me and can't get enough OT conversation, check out otpodcast.com for a listing of occupational therapy podcasts from around the world. That's otpodcast.com. So while we're on the topic of reflection, I would love to hear more about your journey um, becoming an OT and figuring out how how this was the right path for you. Mm. I really love asking people that question, who are occupational therapists? Because it's it's so different for everyone, isn't it? It totally is. You yeah. hear, you met someone through a family member who was getting services, or you found the job description online, and you're like, whoa, what is this? I've never heard anything like it. Um, yeah, like everything and anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, for me... In my graduating class, anyway, I think I was the only one who who had this kind of journey of discovering occupational therapy, which is that I actually had occupational therapists myself. A few years ago, I had this condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which probably lots of your listeners have learned about in school or, or have worked with people who had uh, GBS. Um, but for those who didn't, essentially, it's an autoimmune condition in which your immune system attacks the peripheral nerves in your body. In the most common type of GVS, it attacks your myelin sheath. 
it leads to neuromuscular paralysis in the peripheral nervous system. In my case, my whole body was affected. I, I couldn't move my legs. Actually, I, I found the, or, or I requested the charting from when I was in acute care. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, and was reading like the manual muscle testing scores. So in my legs, it was like one plus for, for knee flexion. Like in my ankles, I couldn't move wow. them whatsoever. Um, it, my face was paralyzed. Like I, I couldn't speak very well. I couldn't close my eyes. Uh, and GBS, it, it, it happens rapidly, right? Like it's a pretty quick onset. And then you're not really sure where it goes. Like it, it's, it affects people very differently. Is that right? Yeah, it does. It was, it was so weird. So at the time I was actually studying neuroscience and then... I don't know if that was helpful or hurtful. Hey? <laughs> <laughs> I found it kind of helpful. Yeah, I w- my undergraduate major was neuroscience at the time and I had just finished my semester of second year. And then on the 23rd of December, I started to notice like a bit of weakness in my legs and some tingling in my hands. I was like, oh, what's going on? So I went to the doctor and they were like, oh, it's just the flu or, you know, mono or something. If it gets worse, come back. And then by Christmas morning, Christmas morning, I, <laughs> I couldn't even get out of bed. Like I had to get my, my mom and my aunt to help carry me out of bed to get to the doctor. Yeah, it was it was really scary. I from that point I just got worse and worse. You know, at my lowest point, which was around New Year's, I couldn't like eat. I, w- I was put on a fully liquid diet and and then had a feeding tube. Uh, nurses had to wipe my butt, like all all that kind of stuff. All of it, yeah. And two weeks earlier, you were writing final exams. Mm-hmm. That's wow. Yeah, which was stressful. I I don't know. Like, GBS has caused, sometimes you can link it to something specific. In my case, you know, I was stressed by exams, I, and it, I also had, like, some flu-like symptoms, so it could have been from that. Right. You know, it's, it, in my case, we really don't know what the cause was. But anyway, so I was in an acute care setting for four weeks, and then from that point forward, I, I went to inpatient rehab and was there for two months. When I was in both acute care and in inpatient rehab, I had some occupational therapists, I think three in total, um, and physiotherapists and nurses, SLP, everything. Yeah. And I found the work that OTs did was just really fascinating and and client-centered and individualized, like the work that, that the OTs did with me and the work that I saw them do with some of the other folks who were in the, the rehab setting. Right. Thank you so much for sharing this personal experience with myself and everyone who's listening. Can you tell us a little bit about like what was going through your head during that time of like moving from eMERGE to acute to rehab to like just that whole process and not knowing if things are going to get worse or get better or stay where they're at? Mm-hmm. I guess the uncertainty. That's the theme we're carrying through here. Yeah. <laughs> uncertainty for sure. The... I know that there's worse conditions you could get than GBS because 80% of people that get it, they do recover like fully or almost fully, but, but 20% of people don't. And actually 5% of people, I think that's the right statistic. I could be wrong. Uh, like die from it worldwide. So, so yeah, it was, it was on my mind, especially when I was at my lowest point and, and not getting better. Like, am I ever going to walk again? Like, 
am I going to have to get a tracheotomy? Like, what's going to happen? So, yeah, it was, it was really it was serious, scary. serious, yeah. And uh, scary for me, but probably even scarier for my, my family to, you know, to see me go through that. Like, uh, any parent doesn't want to see their kid hospitalized and, and in the ICU and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was terrifying. Do you have any moments of OT in your mind where you're like, wow, that changed like my, my experience or you noticed their care? Yeah, I, I had some really great clinicians, like great physiotherapists, some great nurses and some not so great nurses, I must admit. But all, all the occupational therapists I had were pretty great. Um, one in particular, I can't remember her name. I wish I could. I'd like to, to go and talk to her. When I was in acute care, I was waiting to get into rehab to, you know, start focusing on getting better. And I was really motivated. Like, I wanted to get moving and, and get going. And there was just a, yeah, like I said, there was a big wait list. So this occupational therapist found a different program and really advocated for me to get into that. Um, and and that program was in Lethbridge where I was, you know, doing my undergraduate studies. And, and the OT, she figured I could go there, maybe even I could take some classes while I was getting better. I could be around friends and, and family. So yeah, being, being an advocate for me was, I think it was key to my recovery. It's just interesting how like all the factors were there for you to be moving to a different hospital. And it was the OT who was the one who put it together and said, why are we waiting on this wait list when we should be looking to move here? So I think that's something that we got to keep in mind that OTs are the holistic. We were the ones who put those clues together and it's not necessarily up to other people or they might not put it together in the way that we would. And for you, that was so key. Mm-hmm, Cause you know, maybe a, a doctor would normally be the one to write the referral and send it or, or maybe even a social worker. But yeah, this OT saw that, okay, this program would be the best one for, for Justin to get into. So right. yeah, she was kind of a hero, I think. For sure. Yeah. It sounds like it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. A hero for putting together the the right clues. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And, um, yeah. And then once I got to the inpatient rehab center, it was, it was only uphill from there. Like in about a month, I, I started walking a bit. And then, um, by the time I left, I, I needed a cane like from time to time, but, uh, I made pretty well a full recovery and, uh, by a year later, like almost a hundred percent better. Wow. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was about, oh gosh, five years ago now. <laughs> right. Yeah. So inspiring. And meeting Justin today, you would never know he went through an experience like that. What are some of the biggest things you've learned and have applied to your own practice from your experience? Oh, a lot of things come to mind. Um, you know, I think because at the time I was young and like educated a lot of the, the nurses and, and the other staff, they did talk to me like I was a human, you know, they, they talked to me normally, but I saw the way that they talked to some of the older folks who were hospitalized and it was really, it was patronizing. It was like mm-hmm. they were talking to a small child. Um, and I, I found that really annoying. It really 
got on my nerves. So, so now in my own practice, I make an effort to um, talk to everybody, every client that I have, like, like they're a human being, because they are. Yeah, and just remembering that this is one moment in their life that we get to interact with. That minutes are... It is, is it is an honor. honor. Yeah. Yeah. Privilege. Honor. It's our privilege to get to meet human mm-hmm. in that moment of their life mm-hmm. or that time in their life. So, yeah, treating like, as somebody who isn't just one of your patients or one of your clients that is a person that's on their own journey. Mm-hmm. I found yeah. for me the the best um, healthcare workers that worked with me. They they shared a bit about themselves and you know, shared their interests, their passions, and, and took some time to get to know me and ask questions about what I like to do and questions about my family who is visiting me and my partner and stuff. Nice. So they were asking, like, little things, or was it big actions? What kind of things were they doing where they actually got to know you? I remember one nurse when I was in acute care, we had, like, a very deep... <laughs> conversation about like coming out and stuff and and being gay which is maybe not a conversation you would expect to have with with a nurse in a like recovering from gbs that like doesn't necessarily have to have connection to your sexual orientation no definitely but it was so meaningful yeah yeah definitely so that nurse taking time to get to know you was really like a meaningful point in your journey Are there any other um, experiences you had that you felt more like a person and less like someone recovering? Yeah. Uh, When I was in the inpatient rehab place, uh, I had a really great recreational therapist. Um, One of the things that I did in rec therapy, and this is something like an OT could have done too. Um, It really worked on fine motor skills. I got into tile art and making tile mosaics. Oh, nice. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's actually uh, an interest that I have to this day. Um, so cool. So the, the tile mosaic project that I made with help from the rec therapist was a heart that I made like with rainbow colors for my partner. And I also made like some picture frames that everyone I made the picture frame for, they still have it and display it and stuff. Wow. So it's a, it's nice to have that like sort of tangible reminder of what I went through and the work that I put in to to get better. Right. And it was probably really the first time since you got sick that you got to thank people or show um, it, like in an action, like your gratefulness to them, having the experience of people caring for you. Yeah, it was. It was definitely a, a moment of gratitude because I... There were so many people that, like, there's there's no way I could ever pay back the, the support that they gave to me. Right. And it's not about that, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's cool to, that you actually got the opportunity, like, not just to work on your fine motor, but expand the purpose of the activities you were doing. Definitely. And, yeah, I think gratitude is is really important. It's an important part of the recovery journey that, that anyone can go through. And I think any of the team could support and maybe it could also get forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. If no one jumps in on that. Um, yes. That sounds like such a, such an experience and I'm sure you're still processing different parts of it all the time and into your practice as well. 
Um, what sort of things have you started using in your day-to-day work? Well, so especially when I was working in acute care and, and inpatient rehab, um, I literally worked with people who had GBS. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So so with them, I would every time share my story. And I think that it helped to instill hope that, you know, you're going through this really, really shitty time right now, but but it's going to get better. Right. And here's living proof. Yeah. Here's the right. living proof. I'm living proof of that. How did you balance between... Um, being able to share your story, um, but staying in your like kind of OT role versus more of a peer support. Did you ever feel like a struggle there? Yeah, it, it was a struggle for sure. I remember one example. Um, I was the OT for this guy who had GBS uh, and was in the ICU at the time um, and had feeding tube, tracheotomy, you know, lots of tubes hooked up to him. Uh, he wasn't able to communicate at the time. Um, and yeah, I, I went in and, and shared my story with him and did the initial interview thing. But then afterwards, I had to go to the bathroom and like just cried for 10 minutes because it, it brought up lots of emotions and, and lots of memories. Yeah, that was that was not easy. That's, that sounds intense. <laughs> yeah. Um... So would you call that like therapeutic use of self or would you call that like sharing a story? How would you frame that? I think therapeutic use of self is a a good way to put it. Um, And I think therapeutic use of self is so important because you're, you're working with this other human being and, and you're a human being. Right. So I think anytime you work with somebody, you have to give a little bit of yourself to get something in return. Right. Oh, I like that definition of use of self. It's human to human mm-hmm. and giving and getting. That's really nice. Why does that work or why do you try it? Put I don't know spot. if there's, there's <laughs> any other way for me to, to practice. I can't imagine going in and just being occupational therapist and nothing else. Like whenever I'm working with someone, I'm, I'm just in first and then occupational therapist second maybe or or third sometimes (laughs) that's awesome i love that framing i'm gonna i'm gonna borrow that i'm jen first okay no i'm justin first oh well you know today i think i'll stay with jen but (laughs) (laughs) so how do you do it like i know it's easy to talk about well i'm a human and you're a human and let's connect but what are some of the ways you actually use yourself well, I make a point to be vulnerable with people, and I, I think of it as like a, anytime you're working with a client, it's it's a relationship, and like you have capacity to learn just as much from them, often even more than they do from you. Um, so I ask lots of questions, um, you know, not necessarily just about what's what they're going through in that moment, but like, like I moved to Prince George for my my work, and when I was first starting out, especially, I would ask uh, clients for like travel recommendations in, in northern <laughs> right. BC because they would be passionate about that too if yeah. they were going out to the mountains or mm-hmm. enjoying the 
the local festivities. Absolutely. Or like, you know, what are their favorite restaurants? Um, yeah. Cool. And I guess that was the vulnerable piece was, I don't know what I'm doing here. I just showed up. And then they can feel like they're the expert. Yeah. Because they, they were. <laughs> they were. Absolutely. Yeah. And, cool. and like, I genuinely have taken some of my clients' recommendations and like, sometimes a client would recommend me go to a restaurant and then I would go to the restaurant and I would tell them the next day, it was really good. I got this. I liked it. <laughs> That's awesome. So it can be something just as small as asking for what restaurants they like or local things to do yeah. or as emotional or as vulnerable as sharing your own experience with a similar illness or moment in, in your life. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think when you're sharing something vulnerable, like, or being vulnerable with the client, it, you don't have to have gone through something like GBS, you know? We, we've all gone through different shit in our lives. Right. And it's just using that. It's just knowing that Justin has the capacity to go there mm-hmm. and to remember. Um, I think we t- talked about this a little bit um, before the, the interview started, but just the, the act of thinking about a moment that you might have felt similar or that was just crappy for you Mm -hmm. I feel like whoever you're talking to whoever whoever you're with knows that you went there like you're sending a different vibe or you you are more understanding in that moment um if you can put yourself there so sometimes it's not even about sharing anything it's just putting your your body and your mind in that in that space to be there with them Mm -hmm. yeah conveying that real sense of empathy Mm -hmm. and just go in there with them yeah for that moment yeah, people will respond more to, to your recommendations if you have any. And it's just a way of being human. <laughs> yeah, just being being human with someone else. And on, honestly, I've seen that in my own work where that's what they needed. Mm-hmm. More than any behavioral strategy I could have gave them or any tips and tricks or things to try. It was they needed someone to share that, that moment with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I guess this question I always have to ask when we start talking about giving from ourselves and giving, empathizing is not easy work. Like, I think we should get that upgrade on the Fitbit, you know, (laughs) see the calories in and out on (laughs) empathizing. So how do you, how do you fill your bucket? How do you make sure that there's always enough to give? It's so hard. I, I think that refilling your bucket is like maybe the most important thing to remember to do when you're starting out in practice. Yeah, especially. And and like even after starting out, like years and years down the line, it's something you have to really always think about or, or else you're not going to last or you're going to burn out. Yeah, and I found, especially in the beginning, was when I my caseload became a full caseload and then some. And you were so busy, like from the time you showed up to work to the time you left and there was no like decompression time. I wasn't aware of things that might've been emptying my bucket hmm. as much as when I had more time when I was like starting to build my caseload. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I was trying to just get through my day, mm-hmm. it was it was too much. So now I really make sure I plan in moments, whether it's an extra 10 minutes before between clients or um, 15 minutes before I start my paperwork just to kind of check in with myself and see, you know, what things I would notice that might empty my bucket. And just kind of checking in with myself and see if, you know, my bucket was starting to get empty from anything else that I normally wouldn't pick up. Because 
every day is different in our in our line of work and things affect us in different ways and sometimes very unpredictably hmm. you know i've had some interactions where i feel like okay i'm done for the day mm-hmm. when i wouldn't have expected it looking at that experience on paper hmm. just being re- reflective going back to that hey? yeah i guess hey like building in time just to check yeah. in with yourself and make sure your bucket has has enough in it I think as occupational therapists, we have a bit of a a leg up because we think about activities and we think about people as more than just one thing. You know, people are self-care, productivity, leisure, if you want to use that model. (laughs) Sure, yeah. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. So I definitely, I try to occupational therapize myself and and make sure that I'm getting a balance in those, all all the parts of my life. Yeah. And I think... On that note, like really looking at that balance and if that balance needs to change as well, because when you have different things going on in your home life and your work life or new jobs or new roles and anything, the balance might be different. You might need more leisure time or you might need, this is the time, this is the season in my life that I really want to work on that productivity. So I know I'm going to have different balances. So Mm -hmm. I think it's also being flexible in what our balance looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any tips? Any tricks? Like what, what fills your bucket? What kind of things do you like to do? Well, I I like to do things where I kind of get into a, a Zen state of mind and, and just focus on the activity and get out of my head a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um uh, I, I like really repetitive things like baking and cooking. I I like to be in nature. And, mm. and go for walks. It's hard not to find that flow when you're outside, hey? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think for me, I think that repetition is an important piece. Like, so I like to do physical activity for a lot of my kind of reset stuff. And, you know, biking is the same foot pattern over and over and over again, or running or snowboarding. It's the same kind of hip shifts. And I think that just knowing, like, some of the, um, like, trauma-informed care sort of things, anything you cross your midline, like baking, you're constantly moving across your body and organizing your brain, doing all those things that we would recommend for clients, but just just treating yourself kindly too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And making sure that you have a support network. Maybe right. it goes without saying, but... No, I think we should talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like, what kind of support network? Are you talking about other T OTs? Are you talking... What do you mean? Uh, I think having a support network of other OTs is important and... Equally important is having a support network of non-OTs. Ah, turning the OT brain off for five minutes. Yes. Yeah. People who, like, don't care that you're... That, <laughs> that won't listen to your work stories. Exactly. <laughs> Somebody who doesn't care that I'm Justin Turner, occupational therapist. Right. Yeah. And I think that is so key. When I know that my bucket's getting too empty, mm-hmm. I have a hard time switching gears to talk about non-OT things. And that's when I need to schedule my dinner dates or my evening activities with, you know, book club. Or talking about something that has nothing to do with my really long day. Mm -hmm. And, like, that is a way that I have to turn off that OT brain, Mm -hmm. like you said. I don't think I ever put it together until you talked about it. But, yeah, sometimes it's really important to have that break for yourself. I think it's so important. And I don't know if lucky is the right word. But maybe maybe I'm lucky in that my partner thinks occupational therapy is boring. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to know about yeah. your 
Your so different like, assessment you learned today. <laughs> he can only, yeah, listen for so long about about my work. Right. So you got a built-in balance meter there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then I have people who are in my life who, who are interested in, and sometimes you do need to talk about something professional that you're going through. Right. So just having your different, your different groups. Yep. And knowing when to use what. Absolutely. So important. Thank you for sharing that. So we brought up that being there with someone. I know this is something we're both passionate about, but viewing OT as more than just doing. Can you kind of start sharing your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that's one of my critiques of the profession of occupational therapy. And I mean, it's not just in OT, it's in like our culture more generally that there's there's so much focus on valuing people based on what they do mm-hmm. and what they can contribute, like usually in a financial sense. Um, but I think just being is good enough. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's the perfect thing to do. Like that is what is needed. Mm-hmm. Just I think it's a little harder to chart, maybe. I think that's why sometimes we wrap our head around what are we doing rather than you know, are we working on being, are we working on belonging? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like when I was in the hospital, I found that the focus was, let's get this person home. Let's make sure they can like, you know, go to the bathroom with adaptive equipment, like very specific things they need to do. And now that I'm in community mental health, I have a lot more flexibility to zero in on my passion of just letting people be and and the occupation of being, of, of existing in this world. Yeah. So, like, some of the moments when I've I felt most like an occupational therapist are, like, sitting with somebody and not even talking that much necessarily, but just, like, feeling the, the sun on your skin and, and being together. Um, or, or going for a little walk through the forest. Like, that's... That's a great occupation. That's a, a great goal, if you want to use the word goal, to work on with somebody. Exactly. And I know, in my experience, that has been the biggest part of a lot of my therapeutic relationships, is just being there. Mm-hmm. And whether it's being there consistently or being there to help people prove to themselves that they can they can just be, and that's okay. Or they can sit in the sun. And it makes them feel better. And that that is all they needed that afternoon. And that's okay. And you can rest. And you can rejuvenate your body by being and belonging with somebody. Um, and then that need, meeting that need is, is important. When you're talking about being lonely or when you're talking... Yeah, I think loneliness was a big thing for my role now and previously in a more straight mental health um, role (laughs) and the loneliness factor it's really hard to do things when you don't feel accepted or when you don't feel like you have a place to belong Mm. so sometimes I think us taking that step back or not even a step back but the first step is being Mm -hmm. before you can you know do all these things that we have checklists for I think it is the first step and sometimes it's the last step too exactly yeah it's good enough yeah yeah. So once you're doing all these things and you're reaching goals, 
sometimes that's a, a really challenging transition to go from, okay, this is what I have to do next, this is what I have to do next, this is what I have to do next, and then it's kind of like, well, I, I reached my concrete goals, what what now? And I think, especially with people with longer recoveries um, or who have been on a certain journey for a long time, the what next is, or that uncertainty, this is the uncertainty episode, that comes up, and it's hard to just be when you've been focused on a certain goal for so long and you finally achieve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's okay to slow down. Yeah, cool. I like that. Um, so that was a really interesting moment for you where you weren't necessarily doing the most um, traditional, I'm going to say with little air quotes, traditional OT activity that we would think of. But you still, that's when you felt like you're really doing occupational therapy. Do you have any moments when you were not feeling as much like an OT? Yeah, and, and sometimes... The moments when I have felt like this doesn't seem like occupational therapy are like bread and butter occupational therapy things. Yeah. Like when I was first at the hospital, I worked uh, in the pre-screening clinic for people having a hip or a knee replacement surgery. And there was a checklist of questions, like an algorithm that, that you went through with every person. Like, how many stairs do you have to get into your house? Do you have a walk-in shower or a tub shower? And the basic ADLs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The basic ADLs. And, and like logistical things. Like, is there somebody who can stay with you for at least 72 hours once you get home from the hospital? Um, and I, I know that like my role in that and the questions that I asked, they were important as part of the process. But it definitely did not feel like occupational therapy. Right. Especially when I first started. And then as time went by, I sort of put the questions to the side and, and made it more conversational and I would ask more open-ended questions. And it, it started to feel more occupational therapy at that point. So I would ask like, why are you getting this surgery? You know, how does your arthritis impact your day-to-day life? Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine how um, that person receiving surgery would have such a different experience going through a checklist and then mm-hmm. meeting Justin. <laughs> like, it seems like that is such a different um, way of you coming into it, even the way you're just speaking about, like, what you were doing. Mm-hmm. It was, like, very one after another versus, oh, hey, like, I'm curious about you. What's happening? Yeah. And then when I got really comfortable with it, I would ask those questions like, how long have you lived in Prince George? I'm, I'm thinking of going on a vacation to Prince Rupert. You, you got any recommendations? You know, right. the, the general, like, human-to-human kind of questions. Yeah, because it's weird to have, a communi- uh, to have a conversation where it's one-sided, right? It's not always question-answer, question-answer. Mm-hmm. But now you're giving them the opportunity to, to ask you those questions, too. Like, it just yeah. changes who's the expert, I think. When, when people found out that I was new to Prince George, they would have... A million questions for me, too. So, yeah. Right, and changes that power dynamic, for sure. Instead of, I have the checklist, answer my questions. Mm -hmm. To, yeah. I'm stuck on that meeting Justin. Like, it's a a different experience. (laughs) And I think those conversations, why they work so well to do so many things, like change the power dynamic and give someone more autonomy in their treatment or in their session with you. Um, is because you are now shifting from 
doing, doing a checklist to being and belonging and just interacting on that human to human level. Mm -hmm. Justin, I am a little bit jealous of all the clients that get to meet you. Um, (laughs) So for myself and for the listeners, are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Oh boy. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this. All right. What guides your practice? Um, I would say what guides my practice and my, my life more generally is my mom who, who unfortunately passed away just about two years ago now. Um, and she was not an occupational therapist per se. Um, but, but she was in a way like the way that she saw the world and then saw everyone as being valuable mm. and in the way that she helped people. So I just, I tried to live up to her, her kindness and her immediate way of connecting with, with people. Um, yeah, I try to be more like her. Wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> How do you describe OT and your current role? It's such a struggle. <laughs> I, when, I think we all feel that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, when when someone asks me, what is occupational therapy? Like, my heart rate starts to increase immediately, <laughs> which is so silly in a way because it's what I do every day. You know, you think that I, I should have a concise way of describing it. But maybe the best I can do right now uh, in community mental health is I tell people, what are some things that make you feel like you that you're currently struggling with? Some things that you want to get back to doing. I'm the person who helps you get back to those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. What advice would you give yourself uh, when you were starting out as an OT? The advice that I would give is to remember that you are Justin first, occupational therapist second. How do you take care of you? In... Lots of little ways, but the thing that I find the most healing is being in nature, whether that's the forest or the beach or even a city park. Right, just getting out there. What about this work fills your bucket? I'm constantly inspired by the, the folks that I meet and, and hearing their life story. So what about this work fills my bucket is connecting with people and, and meeting them where they're at and working with them on what they want to work on. Well, thank you so much for being here today and spending your time uh, and letting the listeners meet you. It's been a a great uh, conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I had fun. Music in today's show is provided by David Hyde. Thanks, David. And a big thanks to all of you for tuning in and checking the show out. If you have any ideas for the show or want to connect, email me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com. That's generalist, the J. Check out the website, thegeneralist.podbean.com, or connect with us on Facebook at The Generalist Podcast. I can't wait to hear from you and get some ideas for season two. Be sure to check back real soon for the rest of season one on iTunes, Spotify, or Podbean.